Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. Last week we were talking about Francis Bacon, um, one of the most influential British artists of the 20th century, who had this very complex relationship of masochism which shaped his life and his work. Who are we talking about today, Ben? Well, as I usually do, I want to start by telling you a story. So in 1940, there were some American tourists who were sailing a boat near Whale Key, a 711-acre private island about 15 miles north of Nassau in the Bahamas. Not knowing whether the island was inhabited or not, they beached their boat on one of its glorious white sand beaches and thought they would rest and relax and have a little picnic. Well, the party didn't last too long. They were taken prisoner, they later reported, by a group of armed Bahamians led by an eccentric, bronzed, muscular, short white person. They were tied up, writes Tom Cheshire in an essay called The Boss of the Bahamas, and frog-marched to a lighthouse, the white person later emerging from the lighthouse dressed as a, quote, great white goddess and dancing around them before locking the tourists in the garage. They were not set free till dawn. Amazing. Their captor was was today's subject, the eccentric inheritor of an enormous oil fortune and gender nonconforming lesbian who dated Marlena Dietrich, raced speedboats, and turned their private Bahamian island into a domain over which they ruled over native people with an iron fist while allowing themselves and their guests every possible eccentricity and pleasure, Joe Carstairs. Before we get Amazing. to the juicy bits. It does feel yeah. a little bit like um, every lesbian that we profile who lived in the first half of the 20th century has dated either Marlena Dietrich or Josephine Baker. Oh, wait until we get there. It's the, the, the uh, sexual networks of modernism were a circle and pretty much everyone in this story was a node in that circle. Um, right. Before we get to the juicy bits, I want to talk a little bit about dealing with trans and gender nonconforming narratives in queer history. But before we do that, I want to give you one really juicy bit, which is Marlena Dietrich's daughter. Uh, and this is quoted in that same Tom Cheshire essay, describing Carstairs arriving in Antibes to visit Dietrich in the summer of 1937. Quote, bronzed and sleek, one sensed the power of the rippling muscles of his tight chest and haunches. The first thought on seeing him was pirate, followed by pillage and plunder before he approached and turned from a sexy boy into a sexy, flat-chested woman. <laughs> wow, okay. So that's juicy, uh, but it also kind of opens up a conversation about trans and gender nonconforming narratives in queer history that I want to frame this whole episode in. We should all know by now that the past is a foreign country, and they do things differently there. Categories like gay and lesbian and trans are not stable descriptions of eternal truths, but instead are sites of contestation and debate, places where the meaning of living a queer life are worked out. If it made sense for Carstairs to alternate pronouns, dress like a man, take a male first name, and be thought of as a lesbian in their time, which is not to say that they didn't face social opprobrium, but to say that that opprobrium was significantly reduced by, as their whole life was enabled by, an enormous pile of money and aristocratic heritage, then now we face the question of how to talk about them. In her lively and deeply researched biography of Carstairs, the Queen of Whale Key, a source from which I will be liberally citing, discussing, building on, quoting, and pushing back against throughout this whole episode, the writer Kate Summerscale makes the choice to consistently use she-her pronouns to talk about Carstairs. Summerscale notes that Carstairs, quote, always dressed in men's clothes, unquote, and that when uh, Summerscale was responsible for writing and publishing Carstairs' obituary in 1993 in The Telegraph, she did so under the name Joe Carstairs and not their birth name. 
referring to Carstairs as, quote, a cross-dressing lesbian, an immortal boy, and a great ruler of men, and then in the next sentence switching to she and her. A few pages later, Summerscale, who spent a great deal of time researching and meeting Carstairs' descendants, friends, lovers, and employees, says that, quote, the principle by which she defined herself was male, unquote. Okay, there's a lot going on there to unpack, right, isn't there? There's a lot going on, and we're going to unpack all of it slowly over the episode. Um, but this presents an immediate problem for us right now as we start telling this story to our audience. Summerscale's book was written in 1998 at a different discursive moment than the one that we're living through now. And so I'm not opening this way in order to launch an attack against Summerscale, although I also don't want to not push back against her categorizations or her arguments at all. And we will do that throughout the episode. Um, what I can't do is just blithely move on from a biographer talking about someone who always wears men's clothing, is defined by a male principles, etc., and then not explore the trans aspects of this history or just blithely refer to them as a lesbian without giving that word context. Carstairs hated being referred to as Mrs. And so the choice that I'm making here, and I'm making this choice openly in front of everybody with people free and able to agree with me or disagree with me, is to not discuss their birth name, to avoid using gendered pronouns, except when quoting friends, lovers, sources, and Carstairs themselves. And I'm doing this not because Carstairs used they, them pronouns. I'm not sure that there's documented evidence of anyone using they, them pronouns at that time, although I'm happy to be proven wrong. But because what Car Summerscale refers to as the quote-unquote enigma of Carstairs as a figure starts making more sense when we think about them through a trans and gender nonconforming lens as a kind of exceptional normal, an eccentric outlier that helps us understand historical and principles and rules better uh, in terms of both lesbian and trans ways of thinking, writing, and understanding history. I think that, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, as with a lot of the discussions we have on the show about, about um, sexuality, um, you can't often, there's no way you can historically make definitive claims about people's sexuality and gender but you can discuss it through the current framework but the, the the most honest thing you can do is acknowledge the fact that that is what's happening in this this part of the conversation right so that's what i'm doing i'm showing my work and um please disagree with my categorizations or push back if not uh, the choice that i felt stuck on was whether to do this or whether to talk about them exclusively in the framework of trans masculinity. Um, and that latter choice, I ultimately felt less comfortable making because of how they and partners described them. Um, and because it feels to me that it would not acknowledge what the sort of choices and frameworks available to them were at the time. Uh, but again, I'm happy to be disagreed with on that. And I think that it would be a completely reasonable choice to do that. But Let's now start talking about Carstairs' childhood, um, of which they once said, quote, I was never a little girl. I came out of the womb queer. Their grandfather was, and this is the first of a series of wonderful names, um, Jabes Bostwick or Jabe Bostwick. I'm not sure. Um, Bostwick was, along with John D. Rockefeller, part of the Southern Improvement Company that became Standard Oil. Uh, Standard Oil developed a petroleum monopoly that was profitable enough to buy the family a five-floor townhouse near Fifth Avenue on New York's Upper East Side. Bostwick died in 1892 in Long Island at his estate when, trying to save a favorite carriage from burning stables, he tripped, hit his head, passed out, and was engulfed in flames. 
Now, when he died, his fortune was estimated at that time at $10 million, which today is $305,500,000 or about 250,000 pounds. And that's enough to set up a few generations of eccentric heirs and keep them in caftans, cocaine, private islands, and the other playthings of the children and grandchildren of oil magnates. Joe was the child of Bostwick's youngest daughter, Frances, who went by her middle name, Evelyn, or Evelyn. Evelyn married Captain Albert Carstairs, who was a Scotsman and a member of the Royal Irish Rifles, and he'd served in Egypt and Malta. They were married for 10 years, although Evelyn was not a faithful wife, and we cannot assume that Joe was actually Albert's child. The way that Albert treated Joe seems to point towards this as well. Um, Joe was born in the eighth year of their marriage, was ignored by Albert, and claimed in 1975 not to have a father whose name that they knew. Okay. So whoever Joe's biological father was, they were born in London on the 1st of February 1900, which makes them an Aquarius. If any bisexuals with bangs want to tell us how that explains the story, we're all ears, and please also let us know what planets are making us sad. Um, born in Mayfair, surrounded by rich Americans, Carstairs was known in high society Europe as, quote, the dollar princess, which was a reference to the fact that this was a great deal of wealth, but new wealth, and that it was tainted by a series of scandals surrounding Standard Oil. Now we enter into a real tongue twister of British upper class names. So Frances Evelyn, Joe's mother, married another British military officer whose name was Francis Francis. So the newlyweds were Francis and Francis Francis, and Francis Francis and Francis Francis had two more children who they named Evelyn Francis and Francis Francis Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. And And it's amazing, that's that's the son. That's not even a married name. So someone was called Mr. Francis, and they decided to name their son Francis. Yes. Francis, someone was already named Francis Francis, and they decided to name their son Francis Francis Jr. Um, it does remind me of that, that uh, Evelyn War, who also married an Eve, his whose wife was called Evelyn. So they were well, Evelyn War and Evelyn War, and people, their friends, very misogynistically, knew them as Evelyn and Shevelin. I assume that the writer was Shevelin. Um, but uh, so presumably to avoid confusion, um, Evelyn Francis, the daughter, was known as Sally, and Francis Francis Junior was known as Frank. Now Joe was always a tomboy who stuck out among all these well-behaved. Evelyn's and Francis's and Francis Evelyn's and Francis Francis's. In 1905, Carstairs was thrown off a camel they were riding at the London Zoo, and when they recovered, were given the nickname Tuffy, which was a first of many steps away from the strictures of womanhood as defined by the British upper classes at the turn of the 20th century. Once, their stepfather Francis caught them smoking one of his cigars and punished the little Joe by making them finish the whole thing, thinking it would make them puke and hate the whole thing, but didn't realize that the little Joe was already a practiced cigar thief and cigar smoker. He thought he'd cure me, Joe recalled, meaning both of bad behavior and of gender nonconformity, which was obvious from a young age and which was at that time thought of as a sickness. The marriage between Evelyn and Francis would fall apart, with Evelyn increasingly turning to alcohol and heroin. At the age of 11, Joe was sent to an all-girls boarding school called Low Haywood in Stamford, Connecticut, because if you want to make sure that your daughter never has any sexual relationships with women, you send them to an all-girls boarding school. Um, Now, by all accounts, this was a blissful time in Joe's life. As I just alluded to, single-sex boarding schools were then, as now, sites of significant same-sex sexual activity. At this time, deep and even romantic friendships were often encouraged between girls. Such friendships, writes the historian Lois Banner in a biography of other upper-class queer women of the time, but I think this is a really nice passage. Quote, 
were viewed as an innocent outgrowth of the emotionality of adolescence. Girls were expected to have a best friend or a bosom friend. Such relationships were often called smashes or crushes. And Banner points out that it was not generally assumed that this kind of bonding could ever lead to genital contact or interfere with normal heterosexual development. Joe would stay in the United States, living off their inheritance and attending the school until the age of 16, when the First World War had broken out and they begged to be allowed to go to Paris to drive ambulances for the American Red Cross at the age of 16. Uh, family intervention secured permission, and Joe joined their mother, Evelyn, who is living in Paris, who is increasingly addicted to heroin and alcohol, and who is living with a small chihuahua, which she had also gotten addicted to brandy. So Joe arrived. Was was the chihuahua called, called Evelyn or Francis? <laughs> You'll have to pick for yourself. Um, <laughs> so Joe then decided to not live with their mother, but instead moved into a Montparnasse garret where they lived with a whole posse of lady ambulance drivers. And it was in Paris that they began to have sex uh, with women and eventually began a long affair with Dolly Wilde, who was the niece of Oscar and who sort of traipsed around Paris, essentially doing an Oscar Wilde impression at parties and making her living by doing that. The only My one who had the wild name, I think. Yes, My God, Joe said of sex, what a marvelous thing. I found it a great pity I'd waited so long. Dolly introduced Joe to a very famous wealthy lesbian named Natalie Clifford Barney, who came from one of those three named Protestant families who built up Gilded Age America. And uh, Clifford Barney through salons, which featured guests like Valérie, Proust, Jean Cocteau, Colette, Rilke, Ezra Pound, and Ernest Hemingway. At one of these salons, uh, Kate Summerscale reports, Matahari herself showed up on white horseback, nude, except for turquoise jewelry. These are good parties. Um, And Dolly would also eventually die from the complications of cocaine, alcohol, and heroin addiction. While all of this was going on, uh, Joe's mother, Evelyn, married her last husband, a French quack surgeon named Serge Voronoff, who was at this time entering into these newly ascendant worlds of sexology and bodily plasticity by promoting a healing process that he referred to as, quote, the application of testicular pulp, period. (laughs) What does that involve? Well, (laughs) allow me to explain. Um, A 1918 paper described the scientific method he pursued with Evelyn, and this was funded by Evelyn's inherited riches. The two of them would intentionally injure animals and then apply, quote, the living pulp of a variety of glands to promote healing. And he insisted that the testicular pulp did the best job. To once again, quote, Kate Summerskill's biography, quote, this marked the beginning of the couple's obsession with testicles, unquote. They spent the 1920s traveling around the world to study (laughs) eunuchs, to promote the grafting of ape testicles onto humans whose testes has been harmed by tuberculosis, and this led to infections and the grafts had to be removed. Despite a lack of success, the couple promoted the surgeries heavily. Now, this kind of surgery was being heavily promoted at the time, even by more reputable people. Even goodish gay Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld attempted some quite crude surgeries to quote-unquote correct trans people by transplanting glands. And this way of understanding glandular development was also linked to eugenics, to the idea that the human was perfectible towards some specific ideal or desirable type. Now, Joe hated Voronoff, thought this was all quack nonsense, and the feeling seems to have been mutual. But the news of all of Joe's lesbian affairs made it back to Evelyn, who issued an ultimatum. 
settle down with a man or forego the independent inheritance Joe was due to come into at the age of 21. So the quick-witted Joe made a deal with the dashing French womanizer Count Jacques de Pret. Marry, split the dowry, never consummate, and as soon as the appropriate paperwork was secured for the inheritance, get an annulment on grounds of non-consummation. God. And so they executed this plan and they ended up remaining friends their whole lives. I love the sound of them already. Is, yeah. Now, while this was going on, um, Joe decided to set up with some former colleagues from their ambulance driving days in the Second World War, a business called X Garage, which was an all-female driver's chauffeur service in South Kensington, um, in which Carstairs lived in an apartment above it with all of them in some kind of lesbian garage commune situation. Right. So now with that, we return from the testicular pulp back to lesbian sex and to lesbian relationships. Uh, Dolly Wilde was the first in a series of at least 120 lovers that Joe would have in their life. But only one of these lovers would last more than a few years. And this lover was a one foot high leather mannequin doll made by the German company Steiff in 1925. It was an expensive, adjustable children's toy that was given to Joe by their lover, Ruth Baldwin, on a skiing vacation. Joe would name this doll Lord, Lord Todd Wadley, and he would live the rest of his life by Joe's side, wearing expensive suits, Italian shoes, and fur coats. His name would be on the doorbell of Carstairs' homes, and he would always sleep in Carstairs' bedroom. Carstairs could not beg, could not uh, bear to be separated from him. That's really pushing at the limits of English eccentricity, though. So here's another place where Summerscale's biography provides interesting reading and where some tensions in the text point to Carstairs' story as existing at the sometimes tense intersection of trans, lesbian, and British establishment ways of thinking and doing sex, gender, and history. So Summerscale approaches Carstairs as an eccentric. Summerscale came to the story as the obituaries editor at the right-wing Daily Telegraph um, and was first responsible for writing Carstairs' obituary as one of these sort of eccentric aristocrat dies obituaries that the Telegraph sometimes does. And so understands Carstairs primarily as a kind of boffo representative of the British upper class's eccentricity. One of those foolish, bumbling eccentrics, actually a former Telegraph columnist, is currently the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. So Summerscale writes of the gift of the doll via a reading of Juna Barnes's lesbian novel, Nightwood, and suggests that the doll is a replacement for the figure of the child. Um, in Nightwood, an intense lesbian gothic based on the doomed relationship between Juna Barnes herself and the Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, a doll is given by one lover to another and then broken in their various fights. For Summerscale, Lord Todd Wadley is the more positive version of this doomed tragedy. Quote, a girlfriend once suggested adoption and Joe ran from the room virtually screaming with horror, Summerscale writes, adding, quote, girls were so disturbing to her that she scarcely acknowledged their existence and the role of the perpetual boy was their own. So there's a few things that I want to talk about here. One, um, Girls were so disturbing to Carstairs that Carstairs barely acknowledged their existence and the role of the perpetual boy was their own is not a statement that then makes sense to me to insert she, her pronouns into. Um, and the other thing is that Barnes's book, in Summerscale's words, quote, depicts homosexuality as a transcendent immaturity embodied in the doll, unquote. And so I think there is a way in which this is a kind of phobic reading of what's going on here. And I think it shows how What's going on here is not a conflict between the affirmation of 
lesbianism and the discussion of trans or gender nonconformity, but instead a conflict between a British upper class view in which a certain kind of eccentricity is is acceptable if it's shielded by money is coming up against the actual phobic response to the institutions both of homosexuality and of gender nonconformity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, the the thing that jumps to mind when you mention that, of course, is um, is the figure of uh, Sebastian Flight in *Brideshead Revisited* by um, by Evelyn Moore, who who always has this this teddy, right? He's clutching this teddy. Mm-hmm. Is there something there about also the British upper classes? Maybe also a phobic reading, but the, 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 there's a sort of queerness within the British upper classes, which is to do with infantilism, like maybe being, yeah. in a sort of Freudian sense, being stuck in a stuck in a stage, being, um, uh, you know, having arrested arrested development. Is that sort of part of that same reading? Quite possibly, I think. So it was in 1925 that Joe came into full control of the Standard Oil fortune. And they immediately shut down X Garage and decided to begin a career as a speedboat racer. Now, it was at this time that they began to wear almost exclusively men's clothing, slicked back hair, suit jackets, cigarettes, and a rakish grin. They tattooed their arms and really worked them out so they were very muscular. Now, Summerscale's biography and no other sources I could find indicate any connection with Violet Morris, on whom we did an episode last season, but they certainly ran in similar circles, both of them dating actresses and pioneering what at that time was considered female participation in racing sports. Joe used her inheritance to buy herself, or Joe used their inheritance to buy themselves, a high-speed boat that they named Gwen after a lover, until the boat capsized in testing and was renamed Noog, which is Gwen backwards. Among the actresses Joe dated at this time was Tallulah Bankhead, a southern belle who fed her family's fortune to civil rights causes and became a sort of gay icon. My father warned me about booze and men, Tallulah once said, but never said anything about women and cocaine. (laughs) Another great Tallulah Bankhead story, uh, after an overdose, she was having her stomach pumped and came to and said, don't think I've learned my lesson. (laughs) So together with the mechanic Joe Harris, Carstairs would enter a series of speedboat races, winning the first one they ever entered at Southampton and doing well at a series in Cannes before capsizing again. Carstairs and their rivals, who uh, the principal rivals at the time were, get ready for the names, the diamond merchant and boxer Wolf Barnato and John Edward de Johnston Node, the Count of Montenegro, became fast friends and sometimes dated the same showgirls, actresses, etc. Now, one time, Johnston Node and Carstairs were out on the water before the race uh, began, and Johnston Node was taking the Duke of York around to see the various boats before the race began. But Carstairs did not want to be interrupted. Fuck off, she screamed at the future King George VI. Fuck off, don't you bloody well come near me. And given that the race in question was the Duke of York's trophy, this was a rather bold move. Um, Carstairs would end up losing that race after losing an early lead due to getting stuck in weeds. I liked the boats, Carstairs said. I liked the way they behaved. I understood them. Uh, This is quoted in that Tom Cheshire essay. At the end of a race, you're filthy, splattered with oil, soaked through, and can't hear a thing. <laughs> so Carstairs decided to enter into a new boat race, which is known as the queen of all the speedboat races, the Harmsworth Trophy. Uh, this was at that time the major award for boat racing, and it was a race between nations and boats. So you kind of put together a package of boat builder, boat driver, and nation and entered mm. that way. So Carstairs entered for Britain. And they were attempting to break the long winning streak of the boat inventor Garfield Wood of the United States. 
They had three monster boats built. All of them were hydrofoils designed to race along at 115 miles an hour. And all of them were named Estelle in memory of their mother. Now, you'll recall that their mother was named Evelyn and not Estelle. This seems to have been part of their sense of humor. <laughs> in any case, Estelle the first and Estelle's the second were fitted with several 900 horsepower engines each. Um, Estelle the third was never built. Now, there are problems when you take anything and put a giant engine on it. Weight distributions go off. Extra power means that handling can be unpredictable. So Estelle the first sank the first time it was staled. Uh, Estelle the second didn't fare much better. And Carstairs withdrew from the 1928 Harmsworth Trophy before re-entering and then going to America for the first time to race. Now, in America, journalists referred to them mockingly as Betty, which they hated. Um, and I'll read to you now from the Detroit Free Press. It's an article that's uh, quoted at length by Summerscale in her biography um, of what happened at the race. With the crack of the starting gun, Miss Carstairs shot her boat over the line more than 300 yards in advance of her rivals, and thus won the first test of the race. Riding easily and without throwing much spray, the English challenger was opened up. Sensing the test he was being put to, Wood of America opened up the Miss America the seventh. its two powerful Packard motors roaring and flames shooting a foot out of the exhausts. Wood cut down the margin of the Carstairs craft and passed it just going under the bridge. The English girl was making a real race of it and followed close in the wash of wood. Carstairs made the turn and was heading up the straightaway when, without warning, her boat leaped into the air and plunged nose first into the water, throwing both Miss Carstairs and her mechanic out. As the patrol hurried to rescue the unfortunate crew, Miss Carstairs waved that she was all right, but urged them to hurry to Joe Harris, whom they found in an almost unconscious state, paddling to keep on top of the water. Miss Carstairs was swimming and watched them lift her stricken helper into the rescue boat and then climbed in with him. Now, after this accident, Carstairs was sufficiently shaken up to say they'd almost been killed, but when they resurfaced, they were still chewing the same piece of gum, and even though they had cracked three ribs, they did go out dancing that night. <laughs> So the next year was spent in furious preparation. If the Harmsworth 28 had shown that Joe was capable of commissioning a boat fast enough to win and capable of driving it, then the next year was the year the trophy could be theirs. So they commissioned another two boats, the Estelles 4 and 5, uh, each of which had three 915 horsepower engines. Um, these boats broke speed records during the trials, but then both of them broke down on race day and refused to start. Well, Summerscale quotes them as saying at the end of the race, you'd better get a good look at me. It's too frightfully expensive. Apparently, originally frightfully was a different word that begins with F. It was not printed in papers in the late 1920s. Um, upon their return to Britain, Joe was greeted with some media attention that was growing less and less benevolent as the permissive 1920s turned to the 30s. Uh, she places her career before marriage, one article wrote disapprovingly. Carstairs also contributed generously at this time to other speed racer friends. At one point, they uh, financed a 10,000-pound racing car called Bluebird for their friend Malcolm Campbell, in which he broke the land speed record, and he was knighted. Now, Carstairs didn't want to be thanked publicly for this, but was, and so ended up being treated in the press as some sort of dotty patroness rather than an active participant. He drives, Carstairs said of Campbell, like an old woman. A confluence also, of uh, Campbell also died in a <clears throat> died in a um, boat accident trying to break the water speed record. Lake Coniston, mm -hmm. also called Bluebird. So a confluence of professional and personal disappointments here began to accumulate. Carstairs boats began to break down regularly in races. Tallulah Bankhead left London and left Carstairs behind. And Carstairs' relationship with Ruth Baldwin, which was never monogamous, at one point Carstairs had a home with Ruth in London and with another woman named Isabel Pell in New York began to break down. 
Ruth was using more and more drugs, alcohol, heroin, and cocaine. And Carstairs' response was simply to leave her behind and to start taking more and longer sea voyages. They had a 450-ton, three-masted sail ship built called the Sonia II, with three bathrooms and a 60-square-foot stateroom, and sailed it to Panama to hunt for pirate booty. In 1932, they built the Barania, a gas-powered private ocean liner with a cocktail bar, kitchens, dance floors, crew space, and three private cabins. And this, this still- boat, the Barania... What were you saying? Sorry, was this all st- this is all still on the on the standard oil millions? Three hundred and five million. Uh, this is yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Financial situation is about to be about to be unveiled here. So it was this boat that they took to the Bahamas, answering an ad for a private island whale key, which they bought in nineteen thirty four for forty thousand pounds, which today is about three million pounds. Now, at this time, their financial situation was actually somewhat precarious. So. From investments and the inheritance, they had an income of £1,000 a week, which is today £75,000 a week. But they lived lavishly and did not pay any tax from the moment they inherited until when they moved to Whale Key, either in the US or in the UK. So Summerscale claims that when they bought Whale Key, they were £100,000 or today £75 million in debt to the taxman and actually fled to the West Indies, which was at that point a tax haven to escape jail. Okay. So we're now going to talk about Carstairs' life on Whale Key. Uh, To talk about Carstairs' life on Whale Key and to talk about what a profound racist Carstairs was, we're going to have to use some terminology, um, uh, not slurs, but terminology that I would not use normally to talk about it. And if anyone doesn't want to hear some of those words, this would be a great place to stop listening to the episode. I am going to live, Carstairs said upon moving to Whale Key, surrounded by only colored people. Now, the Bahamas at this time were in somewhat tough economic shape. 50,000 black Bahamians lived in the Bahamas at the time and were ruled over by a white elite of about 10,000 who lived entirely in the capital of Nassau. The indigenous inhabitants of the Bahamas had been the Lucayans, part of the Taino people who inhabited the West Indies when Columbus first arrived in 1492. They were forcibly removed from their land in the Bahamas and enslaved in the Spanish colony of Hispaniola, and many died of disease and starvation, murdered by European greed. The English then arrived on these quote-unquote empty islands from Bermuda in the late 17th century and established the Bahamas as a crown colony in 1718. After the American Revolution, some loyalists to the crown moved their plantations and their slaves to the Bahamas, at which point the majority of the Bahamian population became enslaved people of West African descent. Slavery was abolished in 1834, and the Bahamas began to attract freed and formerly enslaved people of African descent. In his History of the Bahamas, Michael Creighton describes a 1920s Bahamian economy that had become increasingly dependent on bootlegging illegal alcohol to prohibitionary United States, with the U.S. coast only a few dozen miles away. When the party ended with the depression and the reintroduction of legal alcohol sale in the United States, many people, especially poor black Bahamians, were forced into deprivation. Edward, Duke of Windsor, vacationed in the Bahamas and was shipped off to the Bahamas in 1940 to become colonial governor in order to keep himself and his wife, Wallace Simpson, a woman who, as David Ratcoff has said, devoted her life to proving that it is distinctly possible to be both too rich and too thin, away from the Nazis, with whom they so profoundly and deeply sympathized, and who planned to use them to rule over fascist England in the event of a Nazi victory. Amongst this colonial deprivation and indigenous and black resistance, Carstairs found themselves welcomed as a source of income. 
rich tax cheats can always be attracted to a tax haven, especially one with white sand beaches and a population poor enough to be paid to look the other way. Whale Key had hosted legal drinking parties for Americans taking boat trips from Florida, and now it became Carstairs' private domain. The island had 200 black residents when Carstairs arrived and switched from one mode of British-American elite, louche speedboat racer, into another, khaki-wearing paternalistic colonist. The natives, as Carstairs called them, were put to work building roads, houses, and basic infrastructure, with Carstairs directing the workers by yelling at them from perches in palm trees. The workers were paid $4 a week for men and $3 a week for women. Summerscale calls this meager wage a godsend, but we might ask questions about whether an essentially feudal system that brought some wages and development with it was really any good at all. Carstairs would eventually hire a foreman named Mickey Moore, who they described as, quote, a bit of a drunkard, but a marvelous man, small, tough, with a shaved head, very anti-black. Together, these racists built a luxurious villa called the Great House, with red tiles and ceilings, flower bushes, five bedrooms and five bathrooms, and a 75,000-gallon freshwater cistern. Carstairs employed the natives on the island to cultivate food and only allowed the women to pull up weeds in the gardens and by the roads. Carstairs called the women weedresses and hated employing them, thinking that women shouldn't work and wouldn't need to if the native men weren't so quote-unquote indolent. Once again, indolence, the accusation of indolence coming from someone who was born with millions in the bank and never precisely worked. Carstairs had a harbor built and parked their schooner, a race boat, the liner Barania, and commissioned yet more boats, the fishing boats Whale and Little Doctor, the speedboat Elsa, the launch Sophie, and a home-built 85-foot schooner, the Vergamir II. Once the boats and house were finished, Carstairs began to entertain, hosting the writer Tim Brooke, Tallulah Bankhead, the butch lesbian heiress Louisa Carpenter DuPont Jenny of DuPont Chemicals, and Mercedes Diacosta, to whom we truly must someday dedicate an episode. Like Dolly Wilde, Diacosta is one of the nodes of the sexual networks of modernism, having had affairs with, wait for it, Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, Alan Asimova, Isadora Duncan, Tallulah Bankhead, Pola Negri, Eleonora Dews, Catherine Cornell, Alice B. Tokla, Sal Kavirtel, and Ava Lagagin, Ona Munson, and Adele Astaire, and ended up befriending Andy Warhol late in life. Diacosta's autobiography, uh, Here Lies the Heart, made oblique references to many of her famous affairs. She was known as a gossip and ended up pissing off a lot of these famous friends who wanted more discretion. Eva Lagallienne would call that book, Here the Heart Lies and Lies and Lies. Apparently, on Diacosta's first visit to the island, Carstairs eventually ran out of patience and actually shoved her back in a plane and had her sent back to the mainland. <laughs> now, Carstairs avoided, avoided drink and drug because of their experiences with Ruth and their mother, but did host wild parties, sometimes leaving mid-party to go out on a boat and catch some fish to serve for dinner. The guests had the run of the island. The black workers were forced to use one small beach out of everyone's sight. You can't have them all over the place, Carstairs said. Carstairs referred to themselves as, quote, a West Indian and deliberately cultivated a sense among their black servants that they had magical powers of some sort. Obeya was a main peasant or folk religion of the Bahamas at that time and was actively suppressed by racist white laws. In 1931, the extremely good gay author, folklorist, and activist Zora Neale Hurston traveled from her native Florida to the Bahamas to write about the local religious practices. Uh, I'm going to quote now from uh, Zora Neale Hurston's essay about Obeya in the Bahamas. It gives us a sense of what was going on there at the time, and this is, of course, linked in the show notes. Quote, this fragmentary description of practices in the Bahamas was gathered on the island of New Providence, the island that is most under the influence of white civilization, 
Obeya there is very drastically suppressed by law and is therefore difficult to know. A study at the outer islands would give much more material. On Cat Island, as in Haiti, the most powerful Obeya people fly on Tuesday and Friday nights. They have fire in their tails when flying like a ball of fire. Now and then you see the lights fly into each other. They are doing business then. Many of the merchants, butchers, etc. go flying to get more luck and prosperity. The next day, as you see them about their businesses, you'd never think they'd been flying the night before to meet the Obeya to get power. The zines correspond roughly to our spiritualists. At a session held for my benefit, the zine threw water into the four corners of the house, a one-room affair, and then lit a candle in the center of the room. It began at twelve noon. He talked to the candle and sang a song about a ship on the sea, a sort of tom-tom rhythm to the clap of his hands as he sang. While he was possessed, he ate glass, crockery, and chewed a piece of wood. When he was fully possessed, he spoke. When he awakes, he knows nothing of went on, of what went on. He is able to call at will the spirit he works with. So Obeah was banned across the Caribbean by colonists fearful of black people's use of these religious and cultural practices for and to coordinate resistance. This kind of religion was a form of slave resistance, and the early Caribbean Digital Archive, which is run by Nicole Aljo and Elizabeth Maddock Dillon, is linked in the show notes and is a great place to learn more about Obeya and its practice and its ongoing practice and legacies. Uh, there they discuss a book by Diana Patton called The Cultural Politics of Obeya, which argues that Obeya was a complex form of political resistance to enslavement and colonialism. And as of 2018, Obeya is actually still banned in the Bahamas, although the law is inconsistently enforced. Aided by their own eccentricity and the presence of Lord Todd Wadley, who, as he aged, was beginning to rep resemble one of the dolls that were sometimes used in some forms of Obeya practice, Carstairs encouraged the inhabitants of the island, one of those islands where Obeya was practiced more openly as opposed to white-dominated Nassau, to see them as an Obeya practitioner, as a source of powerful magic. Carstairs adored the book The White Witch of Rosehall, which is a book about an English noblewoman who lives dominant over an estate of, quote, superstitious people in Jamaica and makes them worship her as a goddess and takes pleasure in watching them be flogged. Carstairs would pay black natives to dress up as stereotypical savages and pretend to riot and then shoot guns off to impress their guests that they had quelled the, quote, angry natives. They performed amateur medicine on the black people who lived on the island while getting their own medical treatment from professionals. They received islanders who had problems as a kind of god king in the morning after breakfast, administering their own punishments according to their own law, hiring a private police force to ensure that the natives followed their moral code, which included severe punishments for adultery. Remember that Carstairs themselves had 120 lovers over the course of their life. Oh, fucking hell. They prevented islanders from drinking alcohol despite serving it liberally at their parties, and fired islanders and executed mash punishment if the law was broken. They stole people's bicycles from them if they rode without a light and constantly threatened to fire people for laziness. They owned the only store on the island where islanders could spend their wages, which made the economy circular. The coffers were constantly refilled, and they refused to raise wages. They drilled the children in English-style military drills and built schools where they learned to worship the King of England, and they insisted on naming every child born on the island, which is a tradition inherited from slave plantations. Now, if this sounds incredibly imperialist and racist, that's because it is. Building some hospitals and schools and doing a little charity work does not excuse running an island like a private fiefdom and forcing hundreds of poor black people into your private servitude. In 1937, Ruth Baldwin died of a drug overdose at a party that was also attended by Dolly Wilde in Chelsea. Joe traveled to England for the funeral, and Dolly would die in 1941, uh, probably of heroin or peraldehyde sleeping pill overdose, although they also had cancer. She also had cancer. 
Joe would keep a picture of Ruth by their bed for the rest of their life, and never again would a lover be allowed to share their bed for the night. You let them sleep in the bed with you afterwards? They once asked a friend. So it was around this time, on vacation in the south of France, that Carstairs met Marlena Dietrich. Dietrich called Carstairs the pirate and was ignored by Carstairs until she approached once and asked why she was being ignored. Because you're Dietrich, said Joe. The next year, Joe brought Dietrich, bought Dietrich a boat, the Arkel, and the year after, they sailed from Whale to Antibes in France to visit Dietrich. This is when that description from Dietrich's daughter, Maria Riva, dates from, and I'm now going to read it in full as quoted in Kate Summerscale's biography. One day, everyone was a Twitter. They congregated along the rocks like hungry seagulls searching the surface of the sea. A strange ship had been sighted making for a private cove. A magnificent three-masted schooner, its black hull skimming through the glassy water, its teak decks gleaming in the morning sun at the helm, a beautiful boy. Bronzed and sleek, even from a distance, one sensed the power of the rippling muscles of his tight chest and haunches. He waved at his appreciative audience, flashed a rakish, white-toothed smile, and gave the command to drop anchor among the white yachts. If he had run up the Jolly Roger, no one would have been surprised. The first thought on seeing him had been pirate, followed by pillage and plunder. My mother, Dietrich, touched Remarque's arm. Bonnie, isn't he beautiful? He must be coming here for lunch. Who is he? She watched him being rowed ashore. Dressed in skin-tight ducks and striped sailor's jersey, he climbed the steps leading up to the Eden Rock and turned from a sexy boy into a sexy, flat-chested woman. So that summer, uh, one night, Carstairs arrived to dine with Dietrich in men's black tie and was turned away by the waiter. They then went back to their room and reappeared in an evening gown, which exposed their large, muscular, tattooed arms, um, and then were told to just come back in the black tie. That was better. Um, Carstairs was so taken with Dietrich that they offered her the entire Whale Key Island, population included. Dietrich, to her enormous credit, declined, uh, but did end up spending the next summer in Whale Key. And their relationship fell apart when a governess who Carstairs had recommended assaulted Dietrich's daughter. When the Duke of Windsor was made governor of the Bahamas, he and Wally visited Whale Key and admired Joe's fascist little system of law and order. Wally saw Lord Todd Wadley and asked, who is that? Joe introduced them by saying, that's my boy, that's Wadley. And Wallace said, my God, he's just like my husband. <laughs> no comment. Um, Joe, would publicly, Joe would publicly pr- pr- praise Wallace and Windsor. And soon word began to spread about Whale Key, which was written up glowingly in the American press as a kind of developmentalist project, with Joe writing a manifesto saying that their ambition was, quote, to train the people to be expert workers in their various trades, to teach them to live in cleanliness and order so that they and the generations of the future shall be fitted to make a decent livelihood and to be an asset rather than a liability to the community. Ugh. Now, listeners can decide for themselves whether oil fortune inheritors who have never worked a productive day in their life and suddenly purchase private islands and force hundreds of people into paternalistic servitude are net assets or net liabilities to the various communities upon which they inflict themselves. One white Bahamian paper at the time described Carstairs as, quote, the greatest since the landing of Christopher Columbus in this colony, which does sort of sum it up, although I don't think how they wanted to. Um, Now, just to put this in context, Summerscale reports that the total exports annually of the Bahamas in the mid-1930s were $750,000. Carstairs spent $250,000 building the island and paid out $1,200 a week in wages. So this is like a big chunk of the whole Bahamian economy. And many people did actually want to go to work there if for no other reason than the forced deprivation of the rest of the colony. 
Now, beginning to take advantage of this, Carstairs started something called a Colored League of Youth um, and wrote a manifesto for it, which said things like, quote, colored people do not prosper in the way they should. They do not seem to care or want to get on. This must be changed. In a bid to be named governor of the Bahamas colony, they built this league up and bought some black people off with the promises of land for political loyalty. Now, the fact that Carstairs had black friends, including the singer Mabel Mercer, whose passage out of almost occupied France Joe paid for and who lived on Whale Key for a time, obviously does not excuse this kind of systematic racism. To Carstairs, Summerscale writes, quote, blacks were subjects as well as comrades and her feelings about them were a jumble of idealism and prejudice. Joe had modeled herself on a colonial ruler and stood for empire, Britishness, cleanliness, hard work, physical bravery, and moral fiber. Um, Carstairs argued that the Bahamas were run by white people and this was correct. Carstairs wrote, quote, these islands were discovered by white people, founded by white people, governed by white people, and behind them throng a rabble of colored folk waiting for crumbs to drop from their tables. Black people were, Carstairs wrote, sleepy and stupid. And recall that most of the black population of the Bahamas is descended from formerly enslaved West Africans. So again, sleepy and stupid and indolent versus this fucking oil air. Um, now, the white Bahamian establishment feared and disliked Carstairs in the league and tried to control it. And it did end up folding when many black Bahamians were sent off to fight in the Second World War. In 1944, having conquered sea, Carstairs began flying planes, spending $20,000 on the Widgeon, a twin engine which could also land on water. They fell short of oxygen and crash-landed in North Carolina, thinking they had died but survived. In 1945, they tried to open up a private airport in Miami, but were turned down by the city council. By 1948, they'd given up on this, privately saying, oh, there just wasn't enough money to bribe those fucking people. Uh, Carstairs would continue to pirate ships that ran aground on Whale Key and submit the stranded crews to their own laws and were often written up in the press as an eccentric. They came to love hurricanes, writing that, quote, the extraordinary strange smell that comes of dampness and dead fish to me was an excitement, to me was delightful. But as decolonization brought increasing confidence to black populations in the Caribbean, Carstairs found themselves less and less able to exercise their racist iron control and eventually abandoned Whale Key to live off the coast of Miami in a houseboat with a series of girlfriends. In 1975, they sold the island, sinking the Estelle IV at the bottom of a river as a memento to it. Increasingly, Lord Todd Wadley was their only companion. In 1976, they said, quote, He's 51 now and still got that boyish look. I'm quite sure I would have been a different person if it hadn't been for him. He's extraordinary. That's what he does for me. They joked that Wadley had had an affair with Jack Kennedy. Quote, they went to the Bay of Pigs together, he had a tremendous liking for him, and gave Wadley many dull girlfriends. Carstairs refused medicine and became more and more isolated, building out their family of dolls and making bequests through the dolls to various friends and relatives. You never really needed anybody, a friend once said. Only Wadley, replied Carstairs. What would you do if something happened to Wadley? No, I don't want to consider it. Just before their 94th birthday in December of 1993, Carstairs fell into a coma and died. Carstairs and Wadley were cremated together and buried with some of Ruth Baldwin's ashes near the ocean in Long Island. Summerscale concludes her biography with this poem written by Carstairs in 1955. The human touch is often disappointing. Although I cannot say I've suffered much, I still maintain that friendship should be true and loyal and rare. And so I've chosen the one whose brown-eyed stare is straight and undeceptive. 
He is always on my side. Although he doesn't yes me, his quiet and unobtrusive ways are such that boredom never enters in my praise of him, is such that if I ever dared begin to phrase my praise, its echo would not cease to ring. And so to cut this story short, I'll tell you all, he's only 13 inches tall, half doll, half boy, half real, half toy, my mascot, Lord Todd Wadley. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gaze. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com. And in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and T-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, Now, every episode we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did-you-know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know that under its director, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI once owned the largest and most comprehensive collection of pornography in the entire world? <laughs> but it doesn't surprise me, that dirty old queen. For the full story, pre-order Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgazepod.com slash book. Well, <laughs> thanks for that, Ben. The dull thing is beyond weird for me. Oh, okay, and I really first sounds like eccentricity, but towards towards the end, take your phone out of your pocket and look up. There are portraits of Joe Carstairs with this doll that they had commissioned, and you can watch the doll go from being like by the end of their life. This doll—I mean, imagine what a fifty-year-old doll looks like—that's been being dragged around through an active, adventurous life in the tropics. I mean, this yeah. doll was like caked in dirt and filth. Um, they would not allow it to be removed from their side to be like properly cleaned. Yeah. So you have this like doll that's completely caked in filth. That's then dressed in a custom Savile Rose suit sitting on the shoulders of this like white haired butch. Yeah. It makes you it's, wonder what the girlfriend thought. Like it's quite impressive to have managed to get a girlfriend when you're also dragging <laughs> around this 13 inch Doll boy well, with if you can also give that girlfriend basically anything that they want financially, oh, yeah. it, <laughs> it helps. Help. And uh, Carstairs was it must I mean in their in their younger years, uh, you know when when they were uh, when they were sort of dating these uh, when they were dating these uh, these sort of remarkable people, um, they did have by all accounts an enormous amount of kind of charisma and and. Um, they were a very effective uh, person in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. you go to someone's private island and you sort of watch them establish control over people. And I don't know, I find that abhorrent that some people find that sexy. Uh, and there is, or they're a speedboat racer, all this stuff. And so I, I think that uh, as they got older, increasingly the, um, the, let's say, eccentricities took over from the qualities that people uh, could find more attractive. Although I think you do see a lot of the really monstrous stuff um, throughout their life. And I think the really monstrous stuff is not the eccentricity, uh, but is the relationship to black people um, in this sort of private fantasy world. 
Yeah, of course, of course. The doll is just a strange manifestation of um, of perhaps like this untouchable uh, status that, that that wealth gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, I do sort of wonder what does what does Elon Musk's doll look like? <laughs> Peter Thiel's doll. But Peter Thiel's doll. Peter Thiel's yeah, doll. Um, <laughs> Peter Thiel's doll allegedly. Uh, <laughs> no, we can't yeah, say no. anything about that because then, then we will become the the sources of uh, fresh young blood for the Peter Thiel yeah. doll that he allegedly has. Uh, <laughs> so um, anyway, no. On that question, in terms of in terms of um, this sort of really disgusting um, racist regime that they sort of established as a a dictator, I guess, like a, a de facto dictator. Um, what's the relationship there between like this? Is there, a, isn't there an attempt? Is this, is this sort of in the same mold as a lot of the other colonial masculinists who we were sort of looking at in the past in terms of, um, uh, Gordon of Khartoum or, or, or Cecil Rhodes, for example, is this like actually like a sort yes. of a manifestation, like a, a, a manifestation within the framework of sort of, Edwardian ideas of gender and, and maleness. Absolutely. And also, I mean, Carstairs would regularly say things that uh, sort of in the same, in the same way as when we talked about Gertrude Stein, right? Uh, we talked about how odd it was that Gertrude Stein had become a feminist icon, given that she would often say things that are sort of startlingly misogynist about women and the proper sort of role and place of women. And Carstairs was very much the same. I mean, thought that women shouldn't work on the island, um, thought that uh, at one point said something about how, you know, uh, women, when I start dating women, they always come in and try to rearrange my house and I hate it. And I hate it when they try to touch all of my stuff and I've never let any woman change me. Uh, you know, like, the, so would, would regularly express, I think, fairly masculinist ideas about, um, about um, uh, everything. Uh, and I think it very much ties into the idea of this kind of pith helmeted Edwardian Brit who's going to go out and, you know, um, uh, force the natives into some kind of, um, into some kind of productive life as they understood it. Um, and of course, these myths still live today in the work of those historians that we've uh, talked so much shit about on this show, but people who say, well, look, they built one hospital, they were, it was actually improving everything, um, mm. and just completely adopt that same paternalistic framework and don't think about what people actually needed or wanted or what the actual tolls of these things are or were. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it's in the word paternalistic is, is a, a gendered framework of thinking about absolutely colonialism. Absolutely. And that's why I think it's interesting to think about like one of the reasons why I wanted to, in the telling of this story, bring up the tensions between the way that I think it's interesting to tell it and the way that the sort of major existing source, which is this Kate Summerscale biography, tells it, is that um, I, I don't know anything about Summerscale's political views, and I don't want to argue that Summerscale believes things that she does not, and I also don't want to give the impression that the biography is a bad book. I think it is not a bad book. It's a very well-researched book. It's a very lively book. It's a very fun book. If anyone is really into this story, I would recommend that they go and buy and read this book. Um, but it is a book that I, into which I read some of these assumptions, some of these British upper-class assumptions about what was good and what was not good and what was excusable and what was not excusable. And I think those go with a way of reading both the racism and the gender nonconformity 
and the homosexuality as these various forms of kind of eccentricity, the same way that having a doll is eccentric or the same way as having a weird haircut is eccentric. Um, and yeah, instead, right. I think they're actually part of these bigger structural systems and they go together in these ways. And that's where I think you get from Joe Carstairs as a really fun story to tell to Joe Carstairs as a kind of lens into um, a whole bunch of British upper class racial imperial sexual and gender dysfunctions and how those things have caused an enormous amount of havoc around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's also something there as well in terms of looking at it in relation to like eccentricity and sort of, I guess, um, forms of forms of like mental illness in terms of the way that you get the same portrayal, for example, in, or not the same portrayal, but a similar sort of aspect within, for example, Conrad and, and uh, the heart of darkness that, the, of of these people who are colonialists who are sort of um in the phrase of the time go native and it's a form of like it seems like right. a form of mad, madness that the the, the the power bestows on them or that they they yeah bestows them power i guess absolutely that's the that's it um and that's you know carstairs themselves says i became west indian um, and I want to go back, actually, I said that wreaked all this havoc around the world. Havoc is the wrong word that wreaked destruction, that wreaked murder, um, that brought Britain an enormous amount of profit. Um, you know, it's not it's, it, even havoc to me downplays it. And I think on Whale Key, you see this kind of microcosm, um, you know, this this uh, reduction to kind of one a single cellular organism of this whole pattern of British colonialism and how it intersects with race and gender and class um, yeah right what's the, other- what's, the difference, what's the difference between Carstairs' behavior and um and uh, what's his name windsor's behavior the duke of um yeah what? yeah well i mean uh, to, to Carstairs' credit Carstairs never you know actively collaborated with nazis um but <laughs> you know <laughs> there is that um the bar is but- that low the bar is that low. the bar the bar for the British upper class is, is located uh, several hundred meters below the underground uh, vault in which they keep all of the jewels they stole from India. Yeah, it's located several hundred meters below the vault of blood diamonds. That is where the bar is. Yeah. Um. And one other thing I was thinking when you were talking about it, maybe you can expand on why, if we're talking about. You, you explained quite well at the start in terms of why, why you're using um, they, uh, they, them pronouns, but you then still refer to their relationships as lesbian or as, as them having lesbian lovers. Right. So this is a moment, a historical moment, when terms are being first invented and these terms are being fought over and fought through and are the sites of sort of struggle and and definition. Um, What that means is that there is embedded in the word lesbian at the time, a series of ideas about gender nonconformity, or at least gender expansiveness, um, that then becomes less so over time as other terms and ways of thinking evolve, if that makes sense. Um, And so it's not to say that I think that this is an exclusively trans and gender nonconforming story and has nothing to do with the history of, of, of lesbianism. Um, But I think it's just as much a mistake to say this is just a lesbian history and has nothing to do with trans and gender nonconforming 
ideas, right? In, in the same way that um, someone like, uh, I mean, this is a very classic queer history example, but someone like Sylvia Rivera, uh, at the time of the Stonewall Rebellion, she identified as gay and a queen. And that doesn't make her less a trans woman. Um, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't refer to her as she, we shouldn't think of her as a trans woman, we shouldn't use her actual name, um, you know, and, and we shouldn't take uh, her history of trans activism very seriously. Um, to me, to acknowledge the other thing is about uh, a responsibility to those of us who are still gay or lesbian, for whom those terms still apply, uh, and who have often, uh, too often, I think, defined our own histories by pushing away uh, gender expansive uh, people, by pushing away gender nonconforming behavior, to say, no, the, like these are also histories to which we have responsibility. These are also histories in which we are implicated. Um, and that, I think, implies uh, the necessity for some kind of political solidarity in the present. Uh, and so that's why I used those terms, because those are also the terms that they themselves were using. Um, but then it also doesn't make any sense to just blithely go through the episode and say she when you've got someone who, you know, would run screaming out of the room whenever they were called Mrs. So... That's where I landed. And as I said, again, I, I think there are a lot of ways you could tell the story. And I don't think that any of them are necessarily wrong, but I wanted to explain why I was doing what I was doing um, so that people could understand why and then feel free to agree or disagree. So please sound off and talk about this. I think it's important. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. Um, so if people want to know more about Carstairs, obviously you mentioned the uh, that biography. Um, but did you give it a title? Is there a title? Yeah, and uh, so it's Kate Summerskill's 1998 biography, The Queen of Whale Key. Um, there's also uh, Michael Creighton's History of the Bahamas, uh, published out of Canada in the mid-1980s. Um, and then uh, that Tom Cheshire essay, Boss of the Bahamas, linked in the show notes. Um, and then two articles about um, Obeya religious practices in the Bahamas and the Caribbean in general, which I think are a very important history that people might be interested in. They're both linked in the show notes. One of them is uh, an excerpt from Zora Neale Hurston's writing about Bahamian Obeya from 1931. Um, and one of them is from Northeastern University from the early Caribbean Digital Archive, an online exhibition called Obeya Magical Art of Resistance. That's great. Well, you've been listening to um, another fascinating episode of Bad Gaze. I can say that because Ben did all the research. <laughs> and... Um, uh, my name's Hugh Lemmy. If you want to find more from me, you can find me online at Hugh Lemmy on Twitter. You can also follow us at Bad Gaze Pod. You can follow me at Ben Writes Things, and you can visit our website, badgazepod.com, to pre-order Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, available from Verso in June of 2022, and get shirts and listen to old episodes and find out more about the show. Thank you so much. Till next week. Bye. Bye. Bad. Bad. Bad, 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 bad,